If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Psalm 50, as we'll be meditating briefly on that psalm this afternoon here. Psalm 50 is an indictment, in large part, against ancient Israel in a generation when they were apparently going through the motions of worship outwardly, but without a heart for it. In the psalm, the Lord appears as a judge, summoning the covenant people, the visible church, to hear his judgments. And the caption tells us that it is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph composed more psalms in the Psalter than anyone else except for King David himself. Uh, This psalm and Psalms 73 through 83 uh, were written by Asaph. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we read that Asaph was one of the Levites that King David placed in charge of the singing uh, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he's the same man who's called Asaph the seer in 2 Chronicles 29. Uh, Asaph was a prophet, and he's someone who wrote God's word, God's inspired psalms. In this case, it would be appropriate that a Levite who sings before the Lord in the tabernacle or in Jerusalem, and then after that in the temple, if he were still alive in Solomon's day, would be writing psalms like this. The introduction in verses 1 and 2 speaks of God's might and holiness. The second section of the psalms, verses 3 through 6, they call even the heavens to witness the judgment of Israel by God. And the third section, then verses 7 through 15, reveal God's judgments on Israel for empty religion, a religion without a right heart. And the fourth section, then verses 16 through 20, or 21 rather, reveal God's judgments on Israel for approving wickedness. And then finally, the conclusion, verses 22 and 23, offer the remedy. So the introduction, verses 1 and 2, speaks of God's might and holiness, as I said. Notice the threefold reference to God here. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, uh, literally El Elohim Yahweh in Hebrew. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So this is pointing to a glorious God. The Lord, who is glorious here, is now going to summon the earth from east to west to hear his judgments, his holiness, his perfections, his beauty shine forth out of Zion, his chosen dwelling place. Now, as we see in places like 2 Corinthians 6, it's really the church, it's really God's people who are his chosen dwelling place. So that increases the indictment really here in the following verses all the more. And of course it teaches us to be cautious about how we worship God, that we would worship him not only according to the letter that he sets forth, but with the spirit that we ought to have, with the heart that is right before the Lord. The people out of whom God's glory should be shining forth into the world at this time when this psalm is written are merely going through the motions of worship all the while engaging in and approving wickedness. So the second section, verses 3 through 6, call the heavens to witness God's judgment of his people. This is either a poetic way of calling all creation to hear, or at least of calling, it might be, the heavenly beings 
to witness what follows. Asaph writes, Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. So notice this, He's, he's not going to just wait and, stop, and, and never say anything about wickedness. But before Him is a devouring fire. As He's coming, He's cleansing the land. He's destroying wickedness, right? Around Him a mighty tempest. So there's a storm and a mighty wind. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And there's a sila there. That's going to be important, too. So contrary to what some think who mistakenly think that because God is patient with sin and isn't pouring out his judgment at every moment upon sin, that somehow that means he's never going to judge it. That he winks at sin. That he just says, ah, it's not that big a deal. No, he's a consuming fire, as Hebrews tells us. And here the psalmist Asaph says the same thing. This consuming fire comes with him. The Selah there at the end of verse 6, calls us to stop and contemplate this fact. God is patient with sin, but He's not going to be patient forever. He's not going to wait to judge it forever. The third section, verses 7 through 15, reveal God's judgment of Israel for their empty religion. For going through the motions of public worship, yes, they're doing what God has set forth, they're doing it right outwardly, but not with a right heart. Verse 7, they're starting there. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. So notice God is he's serving as judge, but he's also serving as prosecutor here. Saying, look at what you have done. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. So he's not say, he says, I'm, I'm not rebuking you for what you're doing outwardly. You're doing the right thing that I've commanded. You're doing that correctly. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. <coughs> for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So why would he not accept the sacrifices that he has set forth in his law that they should bring. Well, they're outwardly obeying the ceremonial law. They're keeping the sacrificial system that God told Moses that they needed to keep. But if that's all there were to it, there would have been no point in God's commanding the sacrifices. It's not like he needs it. right? <laughs> they don't do anything for him. They don't supply him with something he lacked. And everything already belongs to him. I says... Every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And there, that's a poetic way. It's not just that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and not on a thousand and one hills, but he owns all the cattle on all the hills, right? It's a poetic way of saying on a lot of hills, on all the hills, in fact. He asks, starting in verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and the fullness and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? <laughs> Do you think that this sacrificial system that I gave you is somehow supplying me with something I lacked? No, it was for your sake. And if you do it just outwardly and not with a right heart, what good is that to you 
It doesn't do anything to me. It doesn't do anything for me. Oh, that the church today would heed the lesson that Asaph is bringing forth from the Lord here. How often do Christians go through just the motions of outward worship with hearts that are far from the Lord? And the Lord is not pleased. The Lord says here, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the, to the Most High. So yes, do these things and keep your word and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The fourth section here, verses 16 through 21, reveal God's judgment on those who go through the motions of worship, who claim to revere His Word, but who engage in and approve of all kinds of manner of wickedness. The, the, what a, a caution this is for the church today as we are under so much pressure from without and from within the visible church, from professing Christians to conform to the sins of the culture around us. Asaph writes, But to the wicked, God says, so here he said to his people, Yes, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So notice thanksgiving actually takes a genuine heart, doesn't it? So come before me with genuine worship. Do those things. Yes, bring the bulls and the goats like you're supposed to. But do it with a genuine heart and not just with empty motions. But to the wicked... The Lord says, starting in verse 16, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes? Or take my covenant on your lips? So just saying the words and going through the motions of worship, that doesn't do any good. Starting at verse 17, For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So God was patient. He was silent for a time, but he he says, don't think that that means that I think like you, and that I think that these things are okay, that I approve of these things. Don't claim to be adhering to my covenant while you're doing these wicked things. Repent of them. His patience does not last forever. He will judge sin. But in the conclusion in verses 22 and 23, the Lord puts forward the remedy for the problem. If the church does not wish to come under God's judgment, under his corrective hand, God's people have only to engage in worship, which he said they were doing the worship outwardly correctly, but they have to engage in worship with a right heart, one that produces righteousness. The Lord says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So it's not the bull that you bring that glorifies me so much as your thankfulness that glorifies me, right? The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So let's indeed worship the Lord with a right heart now as we finish singing the last section of this psalm. Let's turn our psalters to Psalm 50, selection C, as in Christ. Let's stand together as we're able and we'll sing Psalm 50, C.